Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The largest, most complicated piece of tax legislation in the United States since 1986 has been passed by Congress and is on its way to becoming law. Among its many provisions, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act lowers individual income tax rates, increases the standard deduction, lowers the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent, changes the pass-through deduction amount, and doubles the estate tax exemption. It also repeals the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate to have insurance or pay a penalty, lowers the cap on the mortgage interest deduction, caps the state and local tax deduction, eliminates the personal exemption, and adds an estimated $1.5 trillion or so to the deficit over 10 years. Some of the most controversial provisions of earlier versions of the legislation are no longer included, such as eliminating non-taxable tuition waivers and repeal of the Johnson Amendment. The tax plan does all of this and so much more. We need a bona fide tax expert to help us understand any of it. And so joining me in the studio today is senior fellow Adam Looney, a scholar in our economic studies program and who is affiliated with the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. For three years, Adam was deputy assistant secretary for tax analysis at the U.S. Treasury Department, and prior to that was policy director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings. Also in this episode, our Metro Lens segment featuring David M. Rubenstein fellow Jenny Schutz talking about the mortgage interest deduction. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Adam, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. Since this is your first appearance on the Brookings Cafeteria, could you please talk about your background a little bit and describe your role during your time at the U.S. Treasury Department? Sure. Well, immediately before uh, coming back to Brookings, I was at the uh, Treasury's Office of Tax Analysis. Uh, the Office of Tax Analysis is the office within Treasury that is responsible for estimating the revenue effects of uh, the president's budget proposals, for estimating revenues in the and the receipts forecast for the president's um, budget, and uh, for more generally maintaining the models that are used to analyze the economic effects and distributional effects of tax policy. There are so many numbers. There are so many. Uh different scenarios in uh, this whole discussion of this tax legislation that it, uh, it kind of hurts my brain. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're here to help us understand some of the key points uh, and to talk about some of the key uh, economic issues related to the tax legislation. I want to emphasize to listeners that we're not talking about the politics of it and the horse trading and, and you know, what the different caucuses are up to and whether Doug Jones should be uh, seated before they vote on it. We're just going to focus on at least as much as possible, the provisions of, of the legislation uh, as we understand them. So a lot of people, maybe it's just the media, are calling this tax reform. So just as a general uh, question, Adam, uh, is this bill what you would call tax reform? And if not, why not? Um, so by and large, this is a, this is a tax cut uh, first and foremost. Uh, and the reason is that um, in general, it, it cuts rates on corporate businesses. It offers a new deduction for uh, pass-through businesses, uh, and it reduces rates to some degree on ordinary income. Um, but reform is generally a, a process that that uh, doesn't just reduce rates, but also broadens the base. Uh, and there's not much of that in the final bill. Uh, in the original House bill, for instance, uh, they actually were uh, aggressive in that they took on a lot of uh, special provisions and special interests, uh, things like the student loan interest deduction, um, the, the orphan d drug credit 
uh, and chipped away at a, at a wide variety of uh, tax expenditures. And at each step in the process, most of those uh, base broadening changes uh, dropped out. And so the final bill uh, really is just, uh, uh, by and large, a tax cut, uh, especially weighted towards uh, corporate businesses and pass-through businesses. Um, th there are some there are some elements that um, uh, do do represent more fundamental changes, uh, but that's the the broad takeaway. So let's let's proceed uh, on the following lines for the rest of this conversation by invoking the the Italian director Sergio Leone and talk about what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly or just plain weird in this tax bill. So I, I think in any piece of legislation, again, setting aside the politics of it, any piece of legislation, we're going to find stuff we like and stuff we don't like and stuff that makes sense and stuff that doesn't make sense. So if you could um, address, first of all, what are, if any, some good aspects of this of this new law? Uh, sure. So I, I think that there are, um, at the finer level of detail, some improvements. Um, so I think there's widespread agreement that we needed to change our corporate tax system. Uh, and... Uh, uh, just about everybody, uh, all political parties had were on the same page in the sense that they thought that uh, a, a broadening of the base and a lowering of the corporate rate uh, was appropriate. Uh, and so the bill uh, lowers the rate uh, and it changes the international tax system towards a system that is uh, more likely to be uh, sustainable and, and good for uh, investment in the United States. Uh, that's a system where uh, basically, we have a minimum tax on uh, foreign earnings uh, and some protections against uh, and limitations against uh, profit shifting, moving activities or uh, or profits to low tax foreign jurisdictions simply for the purpose of avoiding U.S. tax. Um, so I, I think that conceptually there there is a movement towards that. Uh, I don't think that they get all the way mm -hmm. quite there. Continuing on the theme of what's good, perhaps there's more uh, in it that's good for uh, the corporate tax system or other aspects of it? Um, so, I, I, I mean, in conceptually, I think the move towards expensing uh, is a good move. It provides uh, tax cuts on new, in, new investments, uh, new domestic investments. Uh, there are some simplifications for small business, uh, in particular uh, uh, enhanced rules and a broader scope of uh, investments that can be expensed immediately not have to carry uh, depreciation around, uh, changes to accounting rules for, uh, for inventories, uh, changes to uh, widening the scope of uh, businesses that are allowed to use cash accounting, uh, things like that that are ultimately simplifications uh, for businesses. There are also tax cut f cuts for, for small businesses. Uh, and I think that those are, are, are focused, targeted changes that, that are improvements in the tax system. Uh, I've also heard about a provision called the corporate AMT. I didn't know there was one. I know that individuals have an alternative minimum tax. What about the corporate AMT? Uh, yes, corporate AMT is uh, is gone. Uh, it made a uh, it, it was in, slated for repeal in both the, the House and Senate bills. Uh, it made a uh, a momentary uh, return one Friday night. Um, uh, uh, that is gone, and, and that is also a, a useful simplification. Um, so we talked about the corporate side. What about on the individual side? Are there any? Uh, what are the good aspects of the bill on the individual side? Well, so on the individual side, the the, the big change is that um, more people will be the, the standard deduction has been uh, doubled, and so fewer people will itemize uh, uh, their taxes just because of that. 
In addition, they've repealed um, certain uh, certain itemized deductions uh, and scaled back uh, others. Uh, the mortgage interest deduction has been uh, reduced from uh, from a million dollars of um, principal to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of principal. Uh, that's a good change. Um, uh, the the uh, they have placed a cap on the ability to deduct state and local uh, taxes. Uh, that is, in in some dimension, a simplification in the sense that more people will be, um, uh, uh, fewer people will, will itemize their deductions as a result of, of that. Um, but it is also a mi mixed bag in that it has uh, substantial economic costs uh, and, and big distributional costs. Um, so uh, I wouldn't say that's a, a clear uh, winner. Uh, but at the end of the day, what that means is that fewer people will itemize their deductions. There'll be um, fewer economic distortions associated with uh, provisions, the, the implicit subsidy to um, activities that allow you to itemize, um, and, and it'll be simpler for people to file their taxes. That, those will be improvements. Yeah, I know a lot of economists and, and uh, other uh, political scientists even have criticized deductions like the mortgage interest deduction, state and local tax deduction, as uh, being basically unfair and as uh, contributing to economic inequality because basically the middle to upper class can really take advantage of those. Uh, well, so under current law, I think only a third of people uh, itemize and they're uh, predominantly higher income mm -hmm. taxpayers for sure. Uh, and, and for the mortgage interest deduction, for instance, the, the larger your home uh, and the higher your income, the larger your benefit. Uh, so I think there's kind of widespread uh, uh, agreement that that's the kind of tax expenditure that should be uh, scaled back. Are there any kind of provisions uh, that you're glad to see in this bill that maybe people haven't actually heard about? Um, well, I, I think I've, I've named some of them. So I think the small business simplification, uh, I think some of the, the rules for expensing. Um, I, I spent time in the, in the end of my, uh, the administration uh, working a bit on the uh, what are called the 385 regulations. Those are regulations that reduced um, interest uh, stripping by foreign-owned multinationals uh, trying to reduce their U.S. tax burden. Um, and, and so the, that was a, um, that is a big issue, it was a big issue, it will be, a, uh, continue to be a big issue actually because the, uh, I think everybody was hoping that there was going to be a legislative solution to the problem of foreign-owned businesses mm -hmm. uh, stripping interest out of the U.S., uh, but the bill doesn't doesn't fix that problem. So I think that the 385 regulations will continue to be uh, something that uh, we hear a lot about. Let's move on to what's bad in this in this legislation. Well, I, I would start with the top line. It, it is a uh, it is a very large. Uh, tax cut at a time when the economy is is strong and where when our budget outlook is very poor uh, so just to put it in perspective I, I think that under uh, under the revenues in the bill in 2025 the federal revenues will not pay for um, interest Social Security Medicare Medicaid and other health spending uh, and national defense uh, let alone anything else in the federal budget uh, so if you thought about the problem of like how do we, how would we balance the budget on uh, this level of revenues, uh, you would have to eliminate everything that the government does, fire every federal worker, eliminate food stamps, um, um, free lunches, the Department of Education, 
uh, and you still wouldn't have uh, accomplished that. You, you still have to dig into, uh, take your pick of Social Security, Medicare, uh, defense. Just to poke a little politics into this, some people say that that's what you know Paul Ryan wants to do. But anyway, we'll set that aside. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, that would be uh, if if um, I would say that you know putting the politics aside, I, I just don't. If you just look at how the math adds up, uh, if you're serious about having a, a budget on a sustainable path, uh, this sets up a lot of. Uh, uh, very difficult choices that uh, that I think people should acknowledge up front before they uh, make these choices. Uh, in a recent uh, video you did for our, our Unpacked series, you talked about uh, the uh, the tax legislation, um, and one of the things you criticized uh, was the change that the law allows for what's called pass-through business income. Can you talk about first of all what is that, and and what you think about that? Sure. Well. Well, pass-through businesses are businesses like sole proprietorships, uh, LLCs, partnerships, uh, S-corporations. They are businesses where the, the income that they earned is not taxed at the entity level uh, as it is with a C-corporation, <clears throat> but is instead uh, passed through to the individual returns, uh, the 1040 that uh, we all file, uh, and is taxed at individual rates. And so by and large, uh, uh, until until uh, next year, uh, wages and pass-through income have always been taxed at essentially the same rate, uh, at least for uh, individual income tax purposes. Uh, and because they were taxed at the same rate, uh, it was uh, a very simple system. It meant that you didn't really have to uh, closely track whether your income was from wages or from business profits. Uh, you didn't have to have rules uh, or too many rules intended to differentiate when a person was uh, self-employed versus an employee. But the bill opens up uh, a very large gap between um, the, the effective taxes, uh, effective tax rate on pass-through businesses. It allows a 20% deduction uh, on the income uh, that is earned in certain pass-through businesses. Uh, if you make less than $315,000 and you're married, uh, the deduction applies to all of your income. Over that threshold, there are, there are so certain uh, requirements about the character of the income and uh, the, the character of the business that, that reduce the, the deduction to some extent. Um, but what that means is that uh, you'll have people in very similar circumstances, uh, a plumber you know, making $60,000 a year who, if that plumber is self-employed, gets to deduct 20% um, uh, of his, uh, his or her income before calculating their taxes. Uh, an employee uh, would have to, doesn't get that deduction, even if they're doing exactly the same job, have exactly the same family structure. Uh, and the, the difference is, I, I'm not exactly sure what it is at the 20%, uh, but, I, but at the previous rate, it was, it was a gap uh, in the taxes they paid of, of kind of more than 50%. It was, it was a very large difference. Uh, and those differences mean that uh, a lot of people will want to be uh, pastor businesses. They'll want to find ways to uh, avoid being classified as an employee uh, and, and find ways to to game the system to, to qualify for the deduction, uh, and that's a problem for uh, for for tax compliance. It's going to be a problem for the IRS trying to police these rules. Uh, it's going to be complicated for taxpayers who are going to have to figure out if they uh, you know what rules apply to them. Let's take a quick break here. 
for Metro Lens featuring Jenny Schutz, David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program, talking about the mortgage interest tax deduction. Hello, this is Jenny Schutz. I'm a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. The U.S. is a nation of homeowners. We have prioritized ownership throughout the country's history, from our agrarian roots to Western pioneers to suburban Levittowns. Over the years, the federal government has promoted homeownership through a number of policies. Today, by far the largest housing subsidy in the U.S. is the mortgage interest deduction. This deduction allows homeowners to subtract the value of interest paid on their mortgages from the income that is subject to federal income taxes. Housing experts across the political spectrum have questioned whether the benefits of the policy justify the cost at nearly $70 billion per year. Progressives ask why the federal government spends nearly twice as much subsidizing homeowners as renters when renters are typically poorer. Conservatives argue that tax treatment favoring housing over other financial assets distorts the nation's economy. Research also shows that the current policy doesn't increase the country's overall homeownership rate. Despite these critiques, the mortgage interest deduction has enjoyed widespread political support from elected officials and middle-class voters. Until recently, it was considered untouchable. Not anymore. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, recently passed by congressional Republicans, would reduce the size of mortgages on which homeowners can deduct interest. Currently, borrowers can deduct interest on loans up to $1 million. The new law would reduce the cap to $750,000. Houses priced roughly above $830,000 are most likely to be affected by the change. Nationally, only about 1 in 20 mortgages is above $750,000. But the price of housing varies widely across the U.S., so the impacts of the tax change could be much larger in some cities and regions. The reduced cap's biggest impact will be in large metropolitan areas in California, Hawaii, and the East Coast. For example, in San Francisco, San Jose, and Honolulu, more than one in four homes are priced above the threshold. Metro areas such as Boulder, Colorado, Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. will also see substantial impacts. The reduced cap will affect prospective homeowners in both central cities and suburbs, but will generally matter more in suburbs. To illustrate, consider the Washington, D.C. metro area. House prices are roughly similar in the primary central city, the District of Columbia, and in Fairfax County, one of the largest suburbs. In both jurisdictions, roughly one in six owner-occupied homes are valued above the new threshold. However, D.C. is a city of renters, and Fairfax is a county of homeowners. Therefore, more total houses in Fairfax would be affected. Nearly 40,000 homes in Fairfax are above the threshold, compared to about 22,000 homes in D.C. Any change to the tax code will create winners and losers. But the way in which the reduced mortgage cap is being implemented raised three concerns about the policy's impacts. First, reducing subsidies to homeowners could be a way to combat rising income inequality. A progressive, revenue-neutral tax plan might reduce the mortgage interest deduction and use the tax savings to expand support to lower-income families. The Republican tax bill does exactly the opposite. It relies on increased revenue from the mortgage interest deduction to offset tax cuts that primarily benefit other wealthy families. Shifting tax benefits from one group of wealthy households to another doesn't improve either fairness or economic efficiency. Second, the $750,000 cap applies only to newly originated mortgages. 
interest can still be deducted on existing mortgages up to $1 million. This means that two homeowners of identical income living in identical houses with the same size mortgages would be treated differently under the tax code, based entirely on the date that they took out their loans. Taxing economically similar households differently violates a key principle of good tax policy. Third, policy changes that can affect the price of goods and services are usually phased in over time, allowing markets to adjust gradually. For instance, increases in the minimum wage are usually phased in over several years. The new tax bill goes into effect immediately for all mortgages originated after December 14, 2017. Phasing in the new cap slowly would reduce the likelihood of a sudden drop in housing prices. The mortgage interest deduction could be modified to improve the efficiency and equity of the nation's tax code. Sadly, the law Congress just passed achieves neither goal. And now back to the interview with Adam Looney. So I asked uh, uh, my Twitter followers uh, to suggest any questions they might want to ask you, and I think this next one kind of follows on with the same theme. Um, Jeffrey uh, asks uh, also about your Unpacked video where you talked about tax shelters. He asks, how does the bill or the law contribute to tax shelters, and how can tax shelters be disincentivized and prevented? Uh, well, sure. There, is a, there are many ways in which uh, people will be able to, to shelter income under the bill. Um, some of the obvious ones are simply switching from being an employee to being uh, self-employed to the extent that you can convince you you can work with your employer uh, or otherwise um, uh, hang a hang your own shingle. Uh, that will be an easy way to to uh, avoid the tax. Uh, a second thing is that some people, uh, for instance, uh, businesses and service trades will want to split up their businesses. Uh, for instance, the uh, real estate gets favorable treatment under the bill. So if you own your own building, uh, if you're a doctor and you own your own uh, practice, for instance, uh, you might want to hold your, uh, the building in, a, in, a, in its own entity, pay rent to it, which will qualify for the 20% break, uh, and then uh, uh, pay ordinary income tax rates on your, uh, the actual income from being a doctor. Just for instance, so so there'll be a lot of games like that. I think uh, higher in the income distribution, the it'll be attractive to actually uh, incorporate and become a uh, what used to be called a personal service corporation. So to be a, a uh, incorporated BAC corporation and pay the twenty one percent corporate rate. Uh, the the disadvantage is of being a C corporation is you pay twenty one percent at the corporate level, and then you can pay rates as high as twenty three point eight percent on dividends and capital gains at the individual level. Uh, on net, those things are those two rates are still uh, just about uh, below 40%. So on net, it's uh, still more attractive to be a C-corporation a than it would be to, to receive wages, uh, including payroll taxes. So I, I think uh, that will be an attractive uh, 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 opportunity to shelter income at the high end. Uh, especially if you can you can avoid the second level of tax on um, on the capital gains and and dividends, and you can do that by deferring the tax, uh, keeping money in the corporation. Uh, uh, if you um, uh, pass on the shares in your corporation to your heirs, uh, the basis in those shares is stepped up, so the capital gain is forgiven. Uh, so there's a lot of things you can do that'll make those very attractive. So um, what in the bill would you say is um 
well, to use the metaphor, ugly, but or just plain weird or, or crazy or, or just unusual. Big picture, the, the provisions for small businesses, I think, are going to be the most um, problematic. And, and I say that because uh, it's going to be very widespread. Uh, there's many people who have some elements of passive business income. The tax preference for being a, quote, small business owner uh, or for getting passed through business is going to be very large. Uh, there really are no guardrails or rules in place today that are intended to police the kinds of distinctions that, that they use in the bill to, to, um, to try to put guardrails on, on what is small business income or, uh, excuse me, pass-through business income. So the provisions they point to are um, provisions that, that deal with um, transactions that historically have only involved venture capital firms buying and selling um, startup businesses, uh, not, not intended to address whether a uh, radiologist is providing health services or technology services or something like that. And so I think that, that will be uh, a huge compliance headache, uh, which, is, uh, which is weird. I, I think another thing that is going to be uh, ugly is the is the next six months or next year of uh, trying to comply with your taxes, especially if you're a, a large corporation. Uh, you know, if this gets signed into law next week, uh, companies will have a week before it goes into effect. Uh, and so suddenly we're going to have a new minimum tax regime, a new international tax regime, new rules about uh, when and how interest is deductible. Uh, and so you have companies like uh, GE that has a 65,000 page tax return has thousands of international subsidiaries uh, in like 130 days they're supposed to be making um, uh, estimated tax payments on their first quarter uh, foreign income I don't think anybody knows how to how they should calculate their um, their taxes for those estimated payments uh, I'm pretty sure that It'll be a struggle uh, if, if it's even possible to get regulations out of the IRS or Treasury by then. Uh, and so I think it'll be very confusing. I'm just hoping that my, uh, my online tax preparation software can keep up with the change, too, at an individual level. Uh, well, knows? so the individuals have a little bit more time. I mean, I, I don't want to minimize the, the challenges. So on, on January 1st, uh, the ordinary in individuals are supposed to have their withholding, withholding um, changed. Uh, I, I don't expect that will be able to go into effect until perhaps February. That, that's probably not the biggest deal uh, in the world. For ordinary individuals, there will be some challenges. So the, usually when you start a job, you fill out a W-4, which says how many, if you're married or if you're single, and how many dependents you have. Uh, we're not going to have dependent exemptions next year. So uh, does that mean everybody needs to refile a W-4? Uh, that'd be a lot of paperwork. You know, there's uh, more than, you know, what? 200 million, 100, 150 million employees? I don't, I don't know. Um, but I mean, hundreds of millions of W-4s. Uh, the, the withholding for your paycheck is going to have to change. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the large payroll processors like ADP, ADP will be able to figure that out. But I don't know if everybody who's doing it uh, with a pencil and a piece of paper at home, uh, that will be a struggle. Uh, I think for for when you actually file your taxes, it, you know, you won't file until April uh, 2019. So you do have a, a bit of time to do, to do that. Um, but the other thing to say is that the, the complexity and the, and the 
the the hard part about filing your taxes next year, I think, will be a it'll be a real question for how should you structure your business uh, in order to get the preferential rate. And so I think that you could um, you could just chug along doing exactly what you did last year. In that sense, it would not be complicated. You could just file the same forms uh, as you did. Uh, but I, I think that the real source of complexity is that if you did that, you would probably not be getting the best deal. And so I think there will be a, a scramble for legal uh, and accounting help to figure out, like, you know, what form of business should I be in? How should I, how should I structure my business? What assets should I hold in this account versus that account? Um, should I reclassify, my, reclassify myself as a corporation instead of a pass-through? Uh, and those are changes where you, those are very complicated questions. You're going to need a, a real advisor, uh, and the dollars at stake on an annual basis are very large. Uh, so I think that that's the real compliance problem for, for people next year. So boom times for accountants and tax lawyers. Um, let me stick with uh, the idea of corporations, something that uh, <coughs> after they figure out all the compliance issues, um, w one of the arguments that proponents of this legislation make is that by cutting a corporate rate, and it's being cut from 35% to 21%, is that the corporations will use that tax savings to expand their businesses, to hire more people, to improve the economy. What do you think about that? Um, so so I, I'm sympathetic uh, as an economist to the view that uh, that incentives matter for individuals and for businesses. And so, so I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the view that uh, if we if we offer uh, businesses incentives for uh, investing in new structures, new equipment, uh, for hiring new workers, that at the margin someone would make those changes and invest more. Uh, but the the rhetoric about uh, having more cash on hand uh, just rings hollow to me. And so what I mean is that t today companies are sitting on record uh, record setting uh, piles of cash. Uh, uh, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars in cash on their balance sheets today. Uh, so they have kind of, you know, they have all the gunpowder they need uh, uh, to, to make any new investments uh, right now. Uh, moreover, even if they didn't have uh, cash on their own books, the, the financial system seems awash with, with um, uh, low-cost cash or low-cost uh, lending. So you see uh, large companies borrowing it uh, in the low single digits. So uh, I'm kind of not persuaded by the idea that it's, it's having more cash in the pockets that is the missing ingredient. Um, and, and, and so I, I think that's kind of just a, a disingenuous uh, uh, justification. Another argument that proponents uh, have made, and, and Republicans especially have made this for a very long time, is that tax cuts just stimulate economic growth. Um, what, and that, in and of itself, will alleviate that uh, that deficit problem that we've already identified. That the the resulting growth in the economy will offset that uh, 1.5 trillion or 2.2 trillion dollar deficit hole. Um, well, so that's right. Well, I, I think there's two things to to keep in mind, uh, or, or two parts to that that uh, debate or that narrative. Um, and so w one one part of that debate is is whether or not um, tax changes or uh, tax-related incentives or, or tax cuts uh, can contribute to growth, and I think that there is a there is a um, 
there's a spectrum of views on there, and some people think that the effects of tax changes are modest. Other things that others think that those effects can be large. Uh, I personally think that th there are uh, certain changes that we could undertake that would be very good for economic growth. Um, uh, but then there's a separate question of whether this particular bill is actually pro-growth. Uh, in that regard, I don't think that it is. Uh, and uh, by and large, it, it does not target its tax cuts uh, at, um, at new investments. Uh, it predominantly provides windfalls to investments that already exist. Uh, it doesn't tackle key margins uh, very forcefully, um, things like profit shifting or the shifting of activity abroad. Uh, it does not really have teeth in terms of um, um, uh, encouraging companies to, to build in the United States versus building elsewhere. Uh, on the individual side, there seems to have been almost no effort to encourage people to enter the labor market uh, to supply more labor, uh, particularly those who have kind of been left out of the expansion of the last uh, decade. Uh, so, um, um, so almost no tax cut for uh, the lowest income individuals who are on the margin between working and not working, uh, very low, very little in the way of uh, tax cuts for wage earners. Uh, they seem to have been um, just left behind in this in this bill. Uh, so I so I so while I think that there there are uh, a lot of changes that one could make and a lot of important reforms that one could make that would be pro growth. Uh, it, those just don't seem to have been um, a priority in this bill. Let's talk now about the distributional effects. I don't think we can not talk about the impact that uh, the tax bill, the tax cuts have on different income groups. Now, the Tax Policy Center, uh, which is uh, an Urban Brookings um, effort, uh, has some great analysis on the distribution of the taxes. Um, to paraphrase perhaps badly, I'll just say that it looks like a large chunk of the uh, of the benefits go to the wealthiest Americans, even though in the first year or so, first few years, a lot of people will get a tax cut. I think they said at least 80% of the people, if not more, will get tax cuts. Again, don't quote me on that. Go to the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center and read their distributional analyses. Uh, but a lot of the benefits, uh, a disproportionate number of the benefits seem to go to the wealthiest Americans. Now, at the same time, some people might say, well, the wealthiest Americans pay the largest percentage of taxes, so they should get the greatest benefit. And besides, they're the people who create jobs and invest. Talk about um, some of the distributional effects of the legislation as you see them? Sure. Well, so the, the question of, uh, you know, there's a question, I think, first of all, of who should get tax cuts. Uh, and there's an or a normative element of uh, to what you think is fair and uh, to which, you know, I have my own views, um, uh, but but I can just tell you what the facts are. And so I'd rather just stick to the to the facts. So I, so I think under the legislation, um, the Tax Policy Center, uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, uh, all, all produce distributional analyses, and they all find essentially the same thing, uh, which is that the the largest beneficiaries of the tax changes are very high-income taxpayers. Uh, in, in part, that's just a simple reflection of the fact that the benefits are concentrated on uh, owners of businesses and owners of corporations. So I think that the fact is that the top 1% of uh, American taxpayers own something like 38% of corporate shares. Uh, and I think about 70% of all pass-through income accrues to the top 1%. So anytime you're cutting corporate taxes and cutting um, and cutting pass-through business income uh, a lot relative to everybody else, it's going to end up accruing to the highest income groups. 
I think the other element that is interesting in this plan, um, in which I think notions of fairness are more uh, uh, more broadly shared, is that you're going to have instances where, um, like I said earlier, the the janitor or the uh, the lawyer or the the plumber or the nurse uh, are doing exactly the same job. They're earning exactly the same amount of income. They have exactly the same uh, number of kids and uh, exactly the same marital status. And just based on whether one is uh, a sole proprietor uh, or self-employed, uh, that person is going to pay uh, a huge amount less in, in taxes. And so that is a, an element of inequity that I, I don't think we've experienced uh, because of our tax system before. And I think that's a good segue to a question I got also on Twitter from Megan, who asked, how do we simplify the tax code while still creating a structure that allows for solutions that fit multiple circumstances and needs? Um, well, so how do we simplify? Well, I think the uh, a starting point is is deciding that um, people in similar circumstances would would pay similar taxes, uh, and so what that means is basically assigning using a, a common uh, rate of tax. <clears throat> so I think that the the in this bill, the, a key problem is the preferential rate for pass-through business income. Uh, on the corporate side, I think the corporate rate is is too low in that it it creates a lot of domestic distortions um, and creates more domestic problems than it solves problems in the inter international space. Uh, and so the those would be simplifications in the sense that you'd have more people um, being ordinary wage earners. And uh, and having a relatively simple system, I think on the uh, more generally that the idea of tax reform and that is to broaden the base uh, when you lower the rate, and and again in, in the original House bill they actually took a pretty um, a, a pretty broad perspective on uh, an aggressive perspective on reducing tax expenditures, uh, just in in the narrow space of education for instance they took on the uh, tuition pay deduction, the student loan interest deduction, um, a host of other small uh, tax expenditures related to education for, for um, uh, education provided by employers, for instance. And they kind of cleaned house. Uh, and the, the trade was, uh, you know, you're going to be better served just by being able to take home, um, be, being able to keep more of your uh, more of your wages, more of your take-home pay. And uh, I think with respect to the financial aid system, that there's now a better system in place in the form of um, income-based repayment or income-driven repayment plans for student loans that would replace a lot of the support we, ought, we provide through the tax code. So it's kind of redundant. So, that, so that's really how you, you simplify. You get rid of a lot of the special provisions that are either redundant or um, hard to use, and you just allow people to to keep more of their cash. Uh, and so that, that's the kind of reform uh, that I think all of the tax practitioners were looking for in this bill. Uh, but but uh, ultimately, we're all dropped out. Well, Adam, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to share your insight and expertise on this very complicated problem with us today. Sure. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Adam Looney and his research on our website at brookings.edu. Be sure to visit the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center and also look for Adam's Unpacked video on our Unpacked series. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network.
Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.